Amen. Well, good morning, church family. Again, we want to welcome you. We thank you for being here with you. Um, last week, I was on vacation visiting family, but I want you to know that I missed you all dearly. I'm glad to see most of you. All right, but no, I'm glad to be back with you today. I miss my church family, miss our community, and, uh, but I was glad to be able to visit. Now, today is Mother's Day, and as Henry said earlier, we are grateful for our mothers. Um, we recognize, again, that Mother's Day can be a hard time for some. For those that want to be mothers but can't, for those who've lost their mothers, and also for those mothers who have lost children, we know it's easy to be overlooked on a day like today when others are celebrating, but we want you to know that Jesus loves you, that we love you, and that we're grateful for you, and, um, and so we want to say that as I begin. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7, as we continue our series on God's sovereignty and silence and in suffering. Now throughout Esther, again this is just the context of the book of Esther, throughout the book of Esther we've seen time and again that God is, though he's seemingly silent and in the background, he's constantly working to bring about his purposes. God is always at work uh, bringing about his purposes for his people. He's put Esther in just this place for just this time. God has raised her up for just this purpose. But God's also been working in another way that I haven't highlighted yet and that you might not have noticed. God has also, throughout the book of Esther, been warning Haman. God has been warning Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and giving him opportunities for repentance. God has been patient with Haman. Now, Haman should have recognized this from several places. First, he should have recognized it by the circumstances going on. Haman should have recognized it when in our last chapter, Mordecai was elevated and given the highest place and Haman was humiliated. But instead, what did Haman do? Instead, he continued his course of action. He did not seek repentance. And instead, he further hardened his heart. But there's a second thing. Haman should have recognized it from the warnings from his wife and his advisors. It seems from the end of the last chapter that they've changed their tune about Mordecai, right? And so they, they basically, they helped Haman devise his plans and then they warn Haman. They're like, look, Mordecai is among the Jewish people and if that's true, you are going to fall before him. They warn Haman. Haman should have recognized this as another extension of God's grace, patience, and kindness. But instead of heeding the warning, instead of repenting, Haman continues to harden his heart. Now, Proverbs says something about that for those who, like Haman, refuse a warning. It says this in Proverbs 16, 5, Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. What Haman does, and hear me, this is important for all of us. What Haman does throughout the book of Esther is he mistakes God's kindness and patience for approval. Think about that just for a second. He mistakes God's kindness and God's patience towards him as approval for what he's doing. Now, Many, there are many today in our society that make that same mistake, and we are all tempted to make that same mistake, that we think because punishment doesn't come quickly, 
that God must approve of what we're doing. Well, listen to what Ecclesiastes 8.11 says. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So the Bible warns us that just because punishment doesn't come immediately, we should not take that to mean God approves of what we're doing. As R.G. Lee said in his famous sermon title, there is a payday someday. Don't mistake God's patience for approval. What we will see this morning as we look at the text is that God is going to reverse Haman's evil plans and bring his own evil back on him. And when God does this, Haman will have no one to blame but himself. God will be vindicated in front of Haman as the one who was patient and kind and good, who allowed the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and God would even stand before Haman and say, I was kind to you, my enemy. And that is the truth. And so as we look at uh, Esther chapter 7, we're going to break it into basically three sections as we go through the text. And so um, let's look at, first of all, Esther's request from verses 1 through 4. The, 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 this text begins with Esther's request in verses 1 through 4. So let's read that together. It says, it says, So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request, even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So right here in these first four verses, we need to understand that 24 hours have passed since Esther first entered into the king's palace um, unannounced and uninvited. The king had graciously extended to her the golden scepter, sparing her life because the king knew something important must be on Queen Esther's mind for her to take her own life into her hands to enter his presence uninvited. Instead of making her request known immediately in front of all of the king's entourage, what Queen Esther does is he asks the queen to invite him and Haman to come to a banquet. And so, after they eat and drink, the king asks her again about her request. What is your request, Queen Esther? Me and Haman are here. What do you want? And at that point, Queen Esther's request is that the king and Haman will return again the next day for another banquet where she will make her request known. Now, as we studied uh, two weeks ago, all of this was part of God's sovereign plans. It wasn't the right time at that moment for Queen Esther to reveal her request. Between these two banquets, something important happens. God was working to elevate and honor Mordecai and to humiliate um, Haman and to give him an opportunity to repent. Again, this should have been a warning shot across the bow of Haman's life that watch out for the people you are antagonizing. You are antagonizing God's covenant people. 
Now Esther's feast here in verses 1 through 4, Esther's feast and merriment has lasted all day and night into the second day, and the king asks her again. So this is now the third time the king has asked her, what is your request, Queen Esther? He uses the customary greeting of generosity. He promised her, I will fulfill your request up to half of my kingdom. And now, right now, Esther is at the decisive moment of the entire book. Just pause and think of where we are. Everything that's happened thus far. We are at the critical and most pivotal moment of the entire book. Esther is about to make her request. She has the right people in the right room at the right time. And she's probably rehearsed this speech a hundred times as she's prepared herself prayerfully for this very moment. And I want to point out three very quick things about what's about to happen. I want you to notice first the humble posture of of Esther towards the king. Notice how she makes her request. The humble posture of Esther towards the king. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king. If I found favor... As Daniel found favor before Nebuchadnezzar, as Joseph found favor before Potiphar and before um, Pharaoh, here she says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. Notice that Esther doesn't come demanding anything. Esther is not in a position of power before the king. He has the final say in all matters, and she humbly presents her petition. She positions herself as a servant of the king who only wants to do what would please and honor him. This is the opposite of how Haman has conducted himself throughout the whole book. But secondly, notice the power of her petition. She says, my request is this, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. That is powerful and that is poetic. She uses the same words the king has just used. Her wish is her life and her request is her people. Now think about this. All along, King Ahasuerus has probably assumed that Esther is going to ask for some honor. She's going to ask for some recognition. She's going to ask for some material blessing or some possession. She might ask for a city. That was not uncommon for queens in this era to ask for a city to be given to her or for uh, the palace to be expanded. You know, king, I'd like a whole new wing added to the palace just for me and my girls. No, she asked for the only thing that really matters, human lives. Human lives are at stake, her life and the life of her people. But notice third, the precision of her request. Esther asks things very precisely. Look at what she says there in verses 3 and 4. This is the precision. Look, notice what she brings up. She says, first, we have been sold. We have been sold, I and my people. Now that is a direct reference to the 10,000 talents of silver that Haman has promised the king for the destruction of the Jews. But then notice also, secondly, she says, we have been sold to be destroyed to be killed, and to be annihilated. Those are the exact words that are found in the edict that Haman drafted and the king signed his name to. That's exactly what the edict said that the people all over Persia were to do to the Jewish people. 
Now, this phrase would have immediately brought the edict into the king's mind. But even here, I think it's interesting that Esther doesn't reveal her true identity. She just says, I and my people have been sold. She doesn't identify herself as Jewish. She simply identifies herself by the common fate shared by her people. But then third, lastly, notice that Esther gives the rationale for her request. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, as horrible as that is, men and women, she says, I would have been silent. She says, but our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now that's a difficult phrase, but this is what I believe Esther is saying. Selling us as slaves wouldn't be worth bothering the king. However, I mean, slavery was rampant during this time. However, human lives are always worth more than money. 10,000 talents does not compare with the loss and the benefit of our people to your empire. King, this is in your best interest. Your loss will be greater if you carry out this edict. Now, so that's Esther's request. Notice, secondly, the king's response. This is the moment. How will the king respond to Queen Esther's request? Look at verses 5 through 8 as we read it together. It says there, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where he was drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now the king here responds first with two very critical questions, doesn't he? What are those two critical questions? Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? The literal translation of this phrase means, who has filled his heart to do this? Now you can tell right away what is the king doing. The king is distancing himself. He's starting to put two and two together that the, the edict that he has signed has been a sham. And he is partly responsible. And so he's here trying to distance himself from Haman and from the edict saying, this was not my intent. I have been fooled. Now, you can tell that he's putting these together, and, and I want you to notice how wise Esther is. Does Esther directly blame the king? No, she doesn't. She doesn't directly blame the king. She, she gives the situation, but the king here distances himself, and then Esther answers the king's questions point blank. Who is he, and where is he? Well, King Ahasuerus, it is this man Haman, your right-hand man. This man right here, this wicked plot, this, this deceptive man is the issue. 
Now, this section is filled with jolting revelations. Like, there's all of these realizations going off. Imagine, put yourself in this room, in this moment, put yourself into this situation, the king, the queen, and Haman, and a plot to annihilate your people, and you risking it all to lay it on the ground, and then all of these realizations come to the forefront, these things that were not known. First, the king didn't realize that the edict he signed put his own queen's life in danger. He knows that right now, that he did not think this through. He did not. He, he passed this legislation without much, um, without much cooperation or bipartisanship. That's a bad way to do legislation. So, secondly, um, the king nor Haman knew that Esther was Jewish. Neither one of them knew that she was Jewish until this point. As far as they knew, Esther had just been a model Persian that the edict wouldn't have affected her whatsoever. And now they know this. Third, the king didn't know that the real enemy of his empire wasn't the Jews, but his prime minister sitting next to him. And Haman has come to another realization. Haman didn't know that his humiliating, his humiliating morning, remember his morning, how he spent his morning? Parading Mordecai through the streets and saying, this is what the king will do to the man the king delights to honor. That is, he's humiliated in front of the whole city. Haman didn't realize until this moment that his day was about to get worse. He thought that he had already lived through the worst day of his life. And no, it's not. His, Haman didn't know his humiliating morning honoring Mordecai would take an even more horrifying turn. But these revelations lead to some very different responses. It leads Haman to being terrified. Oh, don't let this slip past you. Notice what it says there. It says that Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Do you think that's the first time in Haman's life he's ever been afraid of a woman? I think so. He's afraid of the king and the queen. Don't let that slip past you. He's not just afraid of the king. He's now terrified of Queen Esther. He realizes he's in serious trouble. But there's a second response. Notice that... Notice these revelations lead to the king being filled with wrath. The king is so angry that he has to leave the banquet to clear his head. He leaves the drinking. He gets up and goes to the palace garden to gather his thoughts. This is the first time we've seen righteous anger in King Ahasuerus. There's plenty of examples throughout Esther of people being filled with unrighteous anger. See chapter 1 with King Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti. Mordecai has been filled with wrath over, uh, I'm sorry, Haman has been filled with wrath over Mordecai. We have all these examples of unrighteous anger. In every instance, it leads to something stupid and something dumb. But here you see the king for the first time in all of Esther uh, responding with righteous anger. He leaves so he can figure out what he can do. And then look at verse 7. As the king leaves, the text says this. The king gets up. Look at verse 7. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. At this moment, where does the real power lie in the story? Where is Haman at the feet of Queen Esther? At this one moment, you have an incredible turning point. This scene is filled with irony. If you remember, this whole situation in Esther, the whole plot of this book was started because Mordecai, the Jew, wouldn't bow down to Haman. Haman, 
Haman was so furious that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. It tore him up. But at this, this reversal, this great reversal, this great turn of fate, where is Haman? He's bowing at the feet of Esther the Jew. What a turn of events. He's begging for his very life from the queen. And as Haman is begging for his life, another thing happens. The king returns from the palace garden. The king comes in and sees the last straw of Haman's fall from grace. What does it say he sees? He sees, he sees what he believes to be the Haman assaulting Queen Esther, falling on her on the couch. Now, you might not think that's a big deal, but what the king sees is a breach of court etiquette and an assault on the queen. We actually have an edict um, from Persia that gives court etiquette involving court officials and, the, and those involved in the harem. And it says this. This is what the edict actually says. It says, When the eunuch would speak with a woman of the palace, he should not approach her closer than seven steps. That's court etiquette. You have seven steps that must stay between you and the queen. Seven steps. And Haman is now laying on top of her, begging her for his life. Now, we as the reader know, what do we know? He's not assaulting the queen. He's begging for his life. But that's not what the king sees. We know something the king doesn't know. And so what happens is, um, the king knows a different story. Haman's assault is very convenient for him, right? It's very convenient because now it's an easy sell with witnesses present, and he can, it can lead to a very swift summary judgment. And if that's the case, if the king is using this as a way just to fix the problem, get rid of Haman, solve all the issues that he himself also helped create, then Haman would be condemned on the basis of a false accusation. You have assaulted the queen. Well, that's not really true. He's begging for his, she's, he's begging for his life. But Haman is going to be hanged on the basis of a false accusation. Much like the false accusation he's already made against the Jewish people and had them condemned. What was the accusation against the Jews? They don't obey the king's laws. They're, they disrupt the, the Persian Empire. They're a danger to our society and our culture. The Jews were condemned on the basis of a false accusation. That ends up being what cost Haman his life as well. Now behind all of this episode, hear me. Behind all of this episode is this one truth. And take this home with you today. You cannot run and hide forever from your sin. You cannot run and hide forever from your sin. The Bible says this in Numbers, 20, in Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot hide from it forever. Your sin will find you out. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. All of us have an appointment before the king, and we will not pull the wool over his eyes. We will not be able to defraud him, and we will not be able to escape him. There's a, it is appointed for us once to die, and then to go to the judgment. Your sin will find you out. And then Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, of God's all-knowing, all-knowing power. He says, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him with whom we must give an account. Be warned. This is the warning this morning for all of us in this room. 
Do not mistake God's patience and kindness for approval. While there is time and room for repentance, receive God's grace. Turn from your sin and repent. And then this text ends with Haman's reward. So we've seen Esther's request. We've seen the king's response. And now let's see Haman's reward. What is the reward for his actions? Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Here we find another revelation made to the king. Something else that he did not know. And what is that? He did not know that Haman had been up all night building gallows for Mordecai. Apparently everyone in the palace knew this except the king. Harbona, his eunuch, knew what those gallows were for. Everybody at the gate knew what those gallows were for. Those were prepared for Mordecai. The same man he had paraded through the city. Now what we see is the very instrument that Haman had built for Mordecai's death will be the very instrument of his own demise. I want to remind you what Proverbs 11 says. Listen to this. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. So what does that mean in our context? That means that Mordecai is delivered and Haman has been trapped by his own selfish desires. Psalm 7:14 says this, "Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his head and on his own skull, his violence descends." Think about what's happening here. This is incredibly ironic. Haman literally builds his own gallows. He digs his own grave. God literally gives him enough rope to hang himself with. That's what happens right here. Haman builds the very scaffolds upon which he will be hanged. Now here's the lesson. I want you to hear this. This is the, this is the comforting truth for us as believers. Evil eventually consumes itself. Evil eventually running its course will consume itself. It must collapse back on itself and it must turn in on itself. Evil never accomplishes good. That is the point. Now here's the application. Here's an encouragement for us as believers. The world and Satan may devise ingenious plans to destroy us. The enemy is always at work to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But they cannot succeed. We can, that cannot happen. In fact, God will ensure that the evil is returned back upon those who mean evil. Evil will collapse upon itself. Now I want you to think about this pattern. That God, God always is at work to turn evil back upon itself. And it shows up in all of our favorite stories. Think about some of the stories that at least I know. If you think of Clayton in the Disney movie Tarzan at the end. He's tangled in vines. He's so filled with rage that he has to kill Tarzan. He keeps cutting the vines until what happens? 
There's only one vine left, and it's the one around his neck. He's consumed by his own evil. Or if you think of some of my favorite stories, like in The Hobbit, Smog the the Destroyer, this giant dragon who is so filled with pride in his own strength, he boasts of his strength and spreads his wings to show how terrifying he is, and he reveals the one chink in his armor, the one place he can be killed. In his pride, he says, you can't do anything to me, and he reveals the very way that he'll be destroyed. Or for those that are Harry Potter fans, um, if you think about Voldemort, he splits his soul into all of these different parts to, to make basically so he could live forever, but he ends up destroying himself by his own plan. The reason we can't escape this motif and this theme is because this is the very story of God that all of us are a part of. Hear me, this is the main theme of Esther, that God can turn evil back on itself. This is also the main theme of the whole Bible. Evil has its plan, but God through His own, God can turn it for His own purpose and glory. As I've used many times, Joseph sold into slavery for evil purposes. God intends to use that as the instrument of saving His own people. But the greatest reversal of all, hear me as I wrap this up, the greatest reversal of all was Satan's attempt To undo the human race through having Jesus, the Son of God, murdered on the cruel cross of Calvary. This act would ultimately be his own undoing. Paul makes this exact point in Colossians 2. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. That's what God did in the cross. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The point is that Jesus triumphed over his enemies through the very device that they had planned to destroy him. Think about what was happening at the cross. All of the evil intentions, the murder, let's destroy the son and take the promise for ourselves. Let's undo all of God's promises. Let's break the covenant. Let's kill the Messiah. And what is God's purpose in all of that? I'm going to pour out my wrath of sin on him. I'm going to bring deliverance for my people. I'm going to forgive their sin. I'm going to cancel out their debt. I'm going to adopt them into my family and call them sons and daughters. I'm going to give them eternal life. I'm going to seal them with my spirit. I'm going to bring them home to glory. What what, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. The cross is the greatest reversal where everything that evil had planned to humiliate and destroy the Son of God, to enslave God's people to ever, to destroy God's promises and purpose, all are turned on their head. Through the cross, instead, God's promises and purposes are vindicated. Sin is judged and paid for. Jesus is exalted and given the name above every name. Now, the cross is not seen as an instrument of failure or of evil, but as a sign of God's justice, grace, love, and forgiveness. God can turn all things for good. 
That's what the Bible says, right? For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That is the great hope we have as believers. Though evil may prevail for a little while, though sin may be hidden for a little while, there is payday someday and God will keep His word and His promises to His people. Now this morning, I just want to say as I close, if you don't know Jesus, everything in Esther is about Jesus. That's what it's about. Our sin creates our own gallows. We will be judged according to our sin. The good news is that Jesus willingly took it in your place. Jesus went to the gallows for you. And if you will turn in repentance, he will welcome you and receive you. So repent. Don't be like Haman and harden your heart. Turn from your sin and come to Jesus. Lay down your life and give it to Christ. And experience what it means to be forgiven and to be a child of God. Christian, take heart. No matter what the evil plans against you, God's purposes will prevail. If you're going through a very difficult season, draw near to Jesus. Ask God to work. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would take your word and to burn it deep into our hearts. Father, help us to walk with Jesus by faith to trust you in your providence. And Father, even when we walk through darkness and through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, may we fear no evil, for you are with us. And Father, we're thankful for the promise that you never leave us nor forsake us, and that every promise you have ever made finds its yes and amen in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you go, we remind you to stop by our booth outside and sign up for VBS and sign up for um, our, our uh, fundraiser for the VetNet Project in Mongolia. And we hope you have a wonderful week. God bless you.